and welcome to Let's Talk Period, the podcast for people who want all things real, raw and reputable where we smash taboos and break down stigmas. I'm your host Isabella Gosling and today's episode is with Nicole Russell and I will tell you a bit more about Nicole in a moment but did you know that from the 24th to the 30th of April is National Infertility Awareness Week. This episode is a conversation around infertility, but then also a beautiful light at the end of the tunnel around how Nicole got to have her family in the end. So this is a really important one to shed light and bring awareness to infertility. And in general, if you're able to have a conversation or listen to a friend who's struggling with infertility, or maybe you are yourself, speaking up and raising awareness can just do so much good because people have suffered in silence for too long. Okay, now all about Nicole. Nicole is an experienced lawyer and endometriosis sufferer with a passion for surrogacy, which arose out of her own fertility challenges. In 2016, Nicole and her husband experienced the surrogacy process firsthand when Nicole's best friend offered to be her surrogate in an attempt for them to have a child. Through the wonderful kindness of their friend, they now have a beautiful daughter. Nicole has channeled her own personal experiences into a passion to assist others. We chat on Nicole's journey to diagnosis with endo, the impact fertility treatments and hormonal therapies have had on her, navigating embryo loss and those people who don't really see it as a loss, her surrogacy story and how she came to have her daughter, the process for surrogacy and the laws in Australia, plus so much more. Now, here's Nicole. Nicole, welcome to Let's Talk Period. I am absolutely delighted to have you on the podcast and be chatting with you today. Thanks so much for having me on. It's a real pleasure to to speak to you. Uh, And I know that you've listened to a few episodes of the podcast here and there. So I know you'll know the first two questions that I ask you because they are the same for everyone who comes (laughs) on. Um, So the first one is, is all about nourishing your body. So can you share with the listeners what you've done to nourish your body today? Well, today I have to be honest and haven't done too much to nourish my body (laughs) except for having um, a lovely ginger tea, which... um, I've really needed the last few days because I've actually had a really difficult period this month. So the ginger tea really helps me to um, helps from a you know pain perspective, but also um, yeah, I just find it really soothing and nourishing. So that was that's the first thing that I've done today, and then later on I plan to have a bit of a dip in the ocean and um, walk on the sand, and yeah, so they're my sort of body nourishing Mm. opportunities today lovely I always think there's something like so calming and just resetting about going for a swim in the ocean or a walk along the beach that water just sort of just helps everything it's for me it's my you know place of you know rejuvenation and regeneration um being in living in Melbourne I don't have the opportunity very often but um at the moment I'm in Queensland, so I'm taking the opportunity as much as I can and and it really does um, speak to my soul. So, yeah, I love it. Mm, so important and getting those moments in time to do those things just to yes. you know, rejuvenate you is so important. Yes. 
Yeah. And following on from that, when we're managing a chronic health condition or not, um, looking after our health is so important regardless. And there's lots of people, items, therapy strategies, and just things in general that can help us to do this. Is there something that you'd recommend to the listeners when it comes to managing their health? Yeah. So my go-to for the past probably more, maybe 12 years, has been to have a really great naturopath. Um, So I've worked with a naturopath for, yeah, about 12 years and it's been life-changing for me. Um, So I had a chronic illness with endometriosis um, and I had really poor gut health, which I think is probably related to the endo, Um, and also chronic stress um, related to, you know, my my job um, and also living with chronic illness. So... Uh, yes, a naturopath is my sort of top suggestion to help um, manage any sort of, whether it be a chronic illness or not, um, I find that there's always um, some sort of modification that they can make to your lifestyle or your diet um, that can be just so, so super beneficial. Um, but I, I guess the other point I wanted to make is that um, particularly when we're going through fertility treatment, um, there is a bit of a pressure on us to be, um, or to, to feel like we're doing absolutely everything that we can um, to support ourselves and to give ourselves the, the best chance um, at conceiving a baby. And in doing that, I think we throw the kitchen sink at it. And so we don't just go with a naturopath. We have a naturopath and a, you know, a Chinese um, medicine practitioner, and we might have, um, I don't know, a, a pelvic physiotherapist. And, and, you know, we might have, you know, five everyone. or six, yeah. everyone. And <clears throat> that is wonderful. But I also found that that contributed to sort of this, level of stress um, and perfectionism and trying to feel like we're doing absolutely everything right and when the um, you know when the fertility treatment might not be working there's this um, kind of feeling that you're doing absolutely everything that you can and you're doing all of these other things and it should be working and so I just wanted to stress that don't do it because you feel like don't do it if it's if it's adding to your stress or mm. adding to you know your mental load. Um, if it speaks to your soul and it's nurturing you and nourishing you and helping you, then 100% do it. But you know, I, I just want to make the point that I think that we're we feel really pressured to be doing absolutely everything, yeah. and it doesn't always help because um, it could you know just just the time to get to all your appointments and things and. Um, can add to sort of the stress. Oh, definitely. And I think that's, oh, it's so true. And then it comes back to that sort of blame on yourself. Like I've done all these things and it still didn't work and, you know, well, why? Yeah. So I I think that's such an important point to make. Yeah. 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 And, you know, there can be people that come in and you might use the naturopath and they're really great and you keep working with them and you might try a Chinese medicine practitioner for a bit. And if that's not working, it's okay to stop and not keep going. Yeah, that's right. It's giving yourself that permission to, um, you know, kind of surrender a little bit. Definitely. Yeah. 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 
Now, you did just mention that you have a chronic illness, so you're living with endo. Um, When did you sort of notice that that might be something that you might have or when did you think that things might not be normal or typical for you? Yeah, very, very early on. So I probably, you know, probably even from my very first period at the age of 11, I guess I didn't know at that point that what I was was experiencing was different to anyone else. I thought it was just normal, but I'll never forget my very first period being horrendously painful um and and you know like you know being bedridden with the pain and and um I guess just thinking that this was normal um at that age I didn't discuss with anyone else at school Mm -hmm. that I had my period because it was quite um it was always viewed as being, you know, a very private thing. You know, we're, we're going back 30-something years now and so you you didn't talk about those things. And so I really hope that by the time my daughter is, you know, that age of um, that she does feel comfortable and confident to talk to her friends about it. But um, so I had no sort of measure of comparison, I guess. And so I just went along, you know, having this horrendous pain and having to take days off school each month because I was in so much pain I couldn't get out of bed. And my mum had had endo and I think so she'd had the same experience. So, again, I think it was normalised a bit. I think she kind of thought it was normal too. Um, And when I was probably about 13, I started getting ovarian cysts that would rupture and so then I would that's when my laparoscopy started so from about the age of 13 I would have at least one laparoscopy a year for ruptured ovarian cysts from and the pain from that was extreme um and so I I knew that that wasn't normal I certainly didn't have any you know friends at school that were having time off to have surgeries and Mm. um so that you know, was taking time out of school. And then I think it was around 16 that one of the lap, during one of the laparoscopies, the doctor afterwards had said, you've actually got endo as well. Uh, and again, didn't really mean that much to me. Um, it probably, it, it sort of became much more severe probably towards, you know, Nine, nineteen, twenty, um, and then I um, perhaps when I was around twenty-one, I was at uni, uni in Canberra, and the pain was really bad, like to the point where you know just getting out of bed was really difficult. You know, walking was really difficult. There was this constant, you know, heavy sort of pressure on you know in my pelvis, mm. really uncomfortable, um, and. Uh, you know, multiple trips to emergency with, you know, extreme pain. And so um, I sought out um, a specialist endosurgeon in Sydney at that point who did the excision surgery as opposed to the laser. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the first that, you know, that was a tough surgery because the recovery was quite long. Um, but I probably got a good 10 years of relief from that surgery um so I did a, and then I and then probably 10 years later I might have done another excision surgery and again got a lot of relief um but I'm now uh perimenopausal so I don't 
think I've got much endo. Although having said that, I um, have irregular periods now. My periods for the last few years um, have been great. Um, and so I think since I stopped my fertility treatment, um, been working with my naturopath, my periods have been amazing. And so I would say endo-free, mm. um, endo and adeno-free. Um, and then uh, periods have been irregular because I'm in perimenopause at the moment. And funnily, I haven't had a period since July and then three days ago, I've been hit with the most horrendous period that I've had for a long time mm. and like has floored me. I've been in bed, um, you know, sleeping on towels and painkillers and, you know, so I don't know what's going on. Yeah. Oh, it just brings it all back to it you. Does. It, it yeah. does. It actually has been a bit triggering and I feel like that if I hadn't had such a long break between periods maybe I would have been more prepared for it but because I haven't had a period since July and for the last few years everything's been um you know so pain-free I I was it's taken me by surprise yeah yeah definitely yeah oh and I think that's such a common feeling to have like especially when you have had that break and then it sort of hits you out of nowhere just yes yeah yes and I don't feel it's kind of it's hit me with mixed emotions as well because I don't feel like you know I'm 43 so I I was really nearing that almost you know it was about nine months having not had a period and so as you would know once you've had 12 months with no period then you're classed to have you know been in menopause Mm -hmm. and so I didn't feel psychologically ready to be in menopause yet I feel I don't know I feel too young I just don't and and none of my friends are at that point yet so it it just doesn't feel quite right you know I've only got a four-year-old daughter um it just it doesn't feel like that's where my life is at just yet and so um, I'm quite happy to get a period because it means that that 12 months starts again in, in effect you know um but yeah, it's, at the same time, it has been very unpleasant. So, mm, yeah, it's okay. quite a juxtaposition yes. where you sit. Yeah, <laughs> yes, it's just like oh, maybe, maybe you know, the maybe the menopause was the the better option. But yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, just one oh. of those things. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. You did mention having to go undergo those fertility treatments and things like that was potentially not exacerbating but maybe exacerbating your endo symptoms and things like that and yeah I mean I just can't I I can't imagine that all of the hormonal treatment that that you know you take as part of IVF it just can't be good um and I guess so I've tried to sort of mitigate the um, the side effects through, you know, ha- you know, leading a healthy, healthy lifestyle and working with the naturopath and taking supplements that can help to support my body through all of those treatments. Um, you know, there was one um, medication that I was on for three months to actually put my body into a menopausal state and um you know, whilst that was good from a perspective that I didn't have a period, um, it was not good from 
for a million other reasons, um, you know, I suffered from um, tendon in injuries. Um, so then I then developed a really chronic um, gluteal tendinopathy, which um, present has presented with, you know, really huge issues for a number of years now for probably about five years. Um, and that was, you know, a direct result of my body going straight into menopause. You know, I've had, you know, issues with my bones. Um, yeah, the, yeah, the medication is, is not great. Um, although having said that, um, and, and actually I must say during my fertility treatment and having all of these, you know, hormonal treatments and, and different medications, I was constantly unwell. Um, so I developed, for example, um, you know, I had my appendix out. I never had problems with my appendix before that. I had kidney stones um, really badly. So I had like two surgeries for kidney stones. And I'm just like, what is going on, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, since stopping fertility treatment, um, not nothing apart from the chronic um, gluteal tendinopathy but no I've had I've had now I've had for the first time in my life five years with no surgery and no antibiotics um, and no like you know hardcore medications which yeah it's been amazing yeah, yeah, that's an interesting correlation for sure. Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, no one will ever say that, you know, those medications caused this or that. But, you know, I know my body and I know how I've felt since not having to take those medications. So, and I've also, you know, spoken to plenty of other people who have had similar experiences. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. for sure. I'd love to touch on that more so about your experience with navigating fertility and trying to conceive. And as you said, you've now got a four-year-old daughter, which is just amazing. It is. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Prior to trying to have a baby, were, were these things that you'd ever really given much thought to, like the process of having a baby or trying to conceive? Was it anything that you'd really, you know, thought about very much? Yeah, I definitely thought that conceiving would be difficult given my um, history with endometriosis and, and, you know, my years and years of surgeries. Um, Having said that, you know, after each surgery, I would ask specifically my surgeon, does everything look okay to conceive? And each time I was given the, yep, everything looks fine. So, you know, whilst on the one hand I felt like, yes, that it might be difficult, I also felt this level of reassurance that, okay, well, you know. Everything looks good. Correct, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, and that there shouldn't be an issue. So um, I, did, I did anticipate having to do IVF. I don't know why. I just, I just think I prepared myself that that was always going to be something that I would need to do. I do recall at the, you know, age of maybe 25, maybe I was a bit older, but I was certainly younger than 30, specifically asking my gynecologist if I should freeze my eggs. And I was told absolutely and there's no need to do that. And to this day I'm still really cranky that I didn't mm. and that I was told not to. Um, although having said that back back then there was no, I don't think there was 
the technology wasn't as good from an egg freezing perspective and I didn't have a partner at the time. And so I think that freezing an egg that was not fertilized um, was problematic all of those years ago. Yeah. Whereas now, as we know, we can freeze our eggs um, and then they can be they can be fertilized later yeah. on. Um, so these things were all on my radar. And so I certainly, you know, I, I wasn't going to muck around. And when I met my now husband, in fact, it was on our very first date that I said to him, I want to have children. I don't think it's going to be an easy process. Um, just putting it out there now, because if that's not part, if that if that's not, you know, on your radar, then I don't, I don't want to waste. No, exactly. And I think it's important to sort of put that out there at the forefront so you're not wasting that time. Yes. And we didn't meet until I was 35. And so by that stage, I had a plan. And my plan was that if I reached 37 and I was still single, I was going to do IVF with donor sperm and be um, a solo mum. And I'd had a friend who had just done that. And so I felt like I had plenty of support around me. My family was very supportive and they were like, yep, that's completely fine. We'll support you. Um, you know, so that was, that was my plan. And, um, and then, and then, you know, my now husband came along and um, I was like, well, I'm, I've actually got this plan. So, <laughs> you know, you kind of don't really fit into the plan. <laughs> and he was like, well, no, I kind of want to be part of the plan. And anyway, so, um, you know, luckily it all, it all worked out wonderfully with us and our relationship. And we started, we started IVF probably after, well, I thought we'd probably been together for six months. And, um, you know, I was 35, he was 42. And so I, yeah, so we just kind of got on with it, not knowing what my history was. I went to my gynecologist and said, we want to try and have a baby. And he'd said, look, you know, normally I would say to people to try naturally for six months, then come and see me. Given your history, I'm only going to let you go for three um, and then come back. He did all the routine bloods. Everything looked okay apart from my um, AMH. So my egg reserve was very low and my husband's sperm motility, motility was quite low. So he was like, you know it's probably why it's not not working out Mm. naturally and you know but go and do IVF and it will probably be fine kind of thing um and yeah it really wasn't fine even from the very first cycle so I think the main concern for me or for us um initially was my egg reserve and Mm. that how is my body going to respond and would I produce enough eggs in an IVF cycle? Um, And so my first fertility specialist, I think, was quite concerned about that and and, um, she threw everything at it from a, um, you know, hormonal stimulation perspective and the first cycle didn't work. So even on a really high dose of... um, ovarian stimulation or follicle stimulating hormone um they my ovaries didn't respond and so that was concerning for everyone it was like 
oh shit um so then she just mixed it up the, the next cycle so the first cycle was cancelled which was not which was obviously quite stressful mm. then they mixed up the meds the second cycle and then things started happening and we started I actually did respond and so that I did a, an egg retrieval and I got eight eggs which is a very small number but it was an amazing number for me and it was the most eggs that I had ever had collected and I think from that cycle we ended up with two embryos or three embryos it my um like what I I think there's a better word for it but conversion kind of rate so um was really high so they ordinarily would have expected from the eight eggs maybe I would get one embryo if I was lucky but my sort of fertilization rate and then you know conversion to a five-day blastocyst was really high Mm. so the quality was really good which was great um so we did a mixture of fresh site fresh transfer embryo transfers and frozen embryo transfers and I never got a positive pregnancy test not once and um I would I changed fertility specialists and I would have different you know different diagnoses um you know different protocols thrown at me I tried you know hardcore immune protocols and then I tried the the Zolodex protocol which is when your body goes into that false menopausal Mm. state for for three months nothing worked and again still negative pregnancy tests and um I think the thing I struggled the most with during that time was the lack of recognition from others that an embryo had been created and transferred into my uterus and a constant, um, but at least you didn't have a miscarriage was the yeah, response. That would have been incredibly hard and it's, it's still something, it's still a loss. Yeah, and I still really struggle with that. And I, I, at the time, it was almost like I was trying to convince myself that what they were saying was right. Yeah, but at least I didn't have a miscarriage. But and I was like, but hang on a minute, I, I kind of did. Yeah, exactly. There was a baby. Yeah, like it's not like in a natural um, pregnancy where you're trying to get pregnant and. Generally, the reason you don't have a pregnant positive pregnancy test is because you didn't form an embryo. Yeah. That's the, yeah. you know, generally the reason. Whereas right? there was an embryo There inside. was an embryo. Yeah. An embryo was made. An embryo was transferred. It didn't stay in, want to stay in my uterus. And so I really struggled with that concept of, you know, that constant, but at least um, you didn't have a miscarriage. I'm like, mm. really? Um, that's not helpful. Yeah. Um, and so I, I'm quite passionate about talking about that now because I feel like since that time that I was experiencing that and now there's a lot more opportunity to have this discussion like what we're doing today. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I felt somehow that my experiences or emotional experiences were not as you know as great or or, you know they were minimized because I didn't have that that positive not as validated yeah not as validated absolutely yeah um I I found that really hard and I still find that really hard yeah um so we did 
this for you know three or four years and we we kind of I, I did get to a mindset where I thought okay maybe I need to consider an egg donor um, because as each egg collection cycle went on the number of eggs got smaller and smaller and smaller mm-hmm. and so um, and and you know my specialist did say you know mm-hmm. we're kind of scraping at the bottom of the barrel now and so my sister-in-law most beautiful individual had said totally happy to donate eggs and um so we went through there's a counseling process that you need to go through in order to do an egg donor cycle Mm. um so we did that process but we didn't actually get to um my sister-in-law doing the actual donation because we just didn't didn't need to go down that path in the end but we were certainly ready for that to happen um I had been, so my my husband and I had also been found to have a matching DQ alpha gene. I'm not sure how much you know about mm-hmm. that, but it's, um, we all have this gene, this, this gene DQ alpha, and we each have different expressions of the gene. And obviously I'm not a doctor, so my explanation might not be technically correct but if we have if we each have the same expression of the gene then it's like the body has an immune response to the embryo that's made up so it's got my part of dq alpha and it's got my husband's part of dq alpha which is effectively the same and so my so the body um doesn't quite recognize the embryo as being um like it doesn't it rejects the embryo basically Mm. so so in order to counteract that you go on these really hardcore immune protocols so that your body doesn't have this immune response and um you know there's a couple of options with this gene as to how to deal with it you you throw everything at it from an immune protocol perspective and if that doesn't work then i think you can potentially explore a donor embryo, so with donor sperm and donor eggs, but donor eggs alone doesn't solve the issue because mm. you've still got the issue of your husband's sperm, which has that same gene expression. And so donor sperm is um, can be a solution or surrogacy. And at that point it was like, okay, so we've got the donor eggs, but that's not going to help. Um we didn't want to explore donor sperm. I just, I don't know, I really wanted a child with my husband's DNA. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that we had, yeah, that wasn't really an kind option. Kind of like ruled that out. Yeah, yeah kind no, of ruled yeah. that out. And so, and then surrogacy at that point was like, yeah, no, that's not really an option. So we'll, we'll just do the immune stuff and see how that goes. And um, funnily at around the same time, my best friend, she was, you know, tracking how I was going each each cycle and she sent me a text message which changed my life and it said I've been doing a lot of thinking and, um, you know, it was words to this, to this effect, I've mm. been doing a lot of thinking and I am more than happy to be a surrogate and carry your baby if you need me to. Yeah. I, oh, I still, yeah, yeah still, yeah, yeah still. Oh, it would really... have been. I can't imagine what it would have been like to receive that message. Yes, 
um, very emotional, very um, life-changing. And so they live in Canberra and I think my husband was was at work that day and when he came home or, you know, I must have rang him and said, you won't believe this. And that was like, wow, this is actually a real option. Um, She, you know, our relationship was super tight. Um, She had three children, textbook pregnancies and births. Um, I was their godmother and very involved in their lives. Um, And so she was the natural fit, you know, for our family. And so we decided okay let's fly to Canberra this weekend and sit down and talk about it because you know it's one thing to get that message but maybe when you sit down and you have a discussion it might not actually be you know the right thing they had thought of everything you know we we were sitting there and we were doing the whole but what if this but what if that you know it had all been considered there was nothing that that they thought oh yeah actually that might Mm. be a problem yeah. Oh, just, it just shows how much thought and consideration yes. she had given to it, and that yes. that's something she really did want to do. Wanted to do, yeah. And at that point, I wasn't ready to go down that path. I felt that I still wanted to continue trying myself. I hadn't surrendered to the the idea of carrying my baby. And so we said, okay, this is awesome. Let this be. It. Can can we have this as our backup plan? And can we, you know, shelve it? We'll continue yeah. trying and they were like yep totally happy with that um the offers there so we probably continued trying for another maybe 12 months or so and then I started becoming quite unwell from a mental health perspective so I was having really bad anxiety attacks mm. panic attacks not sleeping not eating just not not in a good place yeah. and um we had to visit Canberra for a function and my friend saw the state that I was in and she just looked at me and she just said, that's it. She just said, that is it. You've had enough. I'm taking over now. Yeah. And it was like the most m- massive relief. And I was like, yeah, hands in the air. I surrender. Yeah, I've had enough. That baton. I can't. Yes. It was very much like, yes, can you please? Like, I don't even think I said, can you? It was more like she told me, this is what's happening. This (laughs) This is is what's going to happen. (laughs) I'm here now. I'm taking care of you. And we were all on the same page. We were all like, yeah. And my husband, I think, was so relieved because he was very concerned about me. And, um, you know, there were times where I had said, you know, I've had enough. I can't do this anymore. And he just knew me so well. And he was like, yeah. You, know, you haven't had enough you want this too badly yeah we have to keep trying and um and I think even though he probably didn't really want to keep trying he knew that if I didn't keep going I would regret it yeah and so um you know with that wisdom I did and then my friend came in and it was like she was like my knight in shining armor and <laughs> she take she just took over and from then put that point on, it was so smooth. Um, yeah. I had an appointment with my fertility specialist. I said, okay, I have my best friend here, ready, willing, and able to carry my child. 
she um, has had textbook pregnancies. Um, and so the specialist was like, okay, yep, let's, let's do some tests and check her out and found everything to be completely awesome with her. And so we started the process. Um, the surrogacy process yeah. and, I'd um, love to actually know like what what the surrogacy process actually yeah. is like so yeah I'm keen to hear about yes. that yeah so it differs in each state um my friend lived in Canberra um and we lived in or do live in Victoria and so you follow the legislative framework of the state that the intended parents live in so that was Victoria. So um, my friend travelled down to Victoria. My doctor assessed her, did all of her tests and um, was found that, yep, she would be a great surrogate. And so we started the process through our clinic. You don't do the process through your clinic in every state, um, but in Victoria, the clinic manages the process. And so what's involved is you have to do some mandatory counselling for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. And so that involved... Um, counseling with myself my husband my friend and her husband you know some sessions were just the two you know each couple and then we had some sessions all together and um, <clears throat> so we had to do that for a couple of months and we um, it's also mandatory to have to each have independent legal advice so we each had our own lawyer we had meetings with our lawyers we had um we obtained legal advice. Um, we had to also have an independent psychological evaluation. Um, and once we had done all that, that process probably took, it was actually very quick at going, you know, we're talking five years ago now. Mm. The process is actually a lot longer now. But um, that process took about three months. Um, and in Victoria, you have to go through um, or before an independent panel called the patient review panel to approve the surrogacy arrangement before you can go ahead with the IVF treatment. So we had um, um, we had a hearing with the panel and so the panel meets all of the parties. They are provided with copies of the counselling reports, the legal advice, and they go through all of the things that are, you know, um, identified in those documents and they ask questions um, they found our case to be very straightforward and um, and they approved the arrangement then and there which was amazing and so then we just had to start tracking my friend's cycle and um, we did a transfer I think the following month maybe it was two months later depending on where things were mm-hmm. at so we had a transfer with um, one embryo and we went into this transfer with such different expectations. So my expectation was based on my lived experience of IVF that this yeah. first transfer probably wouldn't work. My friend's expectation was that she didn't ever even plan to be pregnant with her kids. Like she just, she um, just fell pregnant fell yeah. pregnant each time it was great um so she you know in her mind well how could I not be pregnant if an embryo is being put into yeah. my uterus um and yes she became pregnant from the first transfer and it was just oh. like you know our, our lived experiences were so diametrically opposed mm-hmm. and um for me I just kept waiting for something to go wrong for her why would anything go yeah. wrong? Do you know what I mean? It was just so different. Um, but it was just really smooth. 
the pregnancy was textbook. Um, you know, there were there were difficulties from a you know from you know psychologically for me, I, or maybe yeah. for both of us. You know, for me initially it was like oh, you know, I I I, I had to grieve not carrying yeah my own baby and then and then also but couple that with the the huge relief of actually I'm really pleased that I'm not pregnant because I've got the opportunity for to focus on my body and my health and to be really strong when my baby's born and I won't have any physical recovery like there was this you know these you yeah, know so many different feelings emotions yeah, yeah. um and my friend being in Canberra, so I, I obviously wasn't there on a, on a daily basis, but I travelled there monthly and I would go to each sort of obstetrician appointment um, and all the scans and, um, you know, I would use that opportunity to assist her with her kids um, and do the school school drop-offs and pickups and make sure they had enough food in the house and you know make sure the house was clean and you know do whatever I could to support her during that time um because being pregnant with um and you know she was also a lawyer so she was working really hard and she had three kids and it was full on for her really was um but the process really was so straightforward and um the the you know the the birth was um again it was again it was just really straightforward um you know normal vaginal delivery uh we were all present for the birth so my husband and I and and my friend's husband um it was just the most amazingly beautiful experience I was gonna say I can't imagine you finally getting to meet your baby after such a long long time yeah, I'll I'll never forget that moment. And one of the other moments that I'll never forget is hearing her heartbeat for the first time. How so special. that was absolutely phenomenal. And you know, one thing I find really beautiful now is I have clients who go through surrogacy and they will go to that seven week scan and hear the heartbeat and they'll send it to me. Oh. And it's just like, oh, it's just nothing prepares you for that sound when you've especially when you've never heard it before yeah when you've never had the opportunity to hear that sound before and then you then all of a sudden you get to hear your baby's heartbeat it's it's just nothing compares nothing compares yeah Yeah, nothing compares yeah that is just so incredible and like your friend is an absolute angel and yeah yeah she is just the most amazing selfless you know person and I do remember feeling quite guilty throughout the pregnancy like guilty that you know she was uncomfortable guilty that she was feeling sick and tired and you know she wasn't able to go on an overseas holiday so I was racked with guilt the whole time and you know I was seeing a therapist at the time and you know he was I'll never forget he said to me why do you think she's doing this for you and I said I think she's doing this because she wants me to experience you know the love of having children and a family that that she's experienced he's like yeah so do you think she really cares that you know do you think yeah what he was trying to get me to realize is that you know she kind of she she signed up for that and she knew that that 
and 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 that you know she was actually getting something really positive out of it in the end too and that was seeing me be so happy and also she has this most amazing connection with my daughter um it's just beautiful they have a really special relationship yeah yeah mutually beneficial and she wouldn't she wouldn't have signed up for it if you know if she didn't want to do that for you so I think yeah it's yeah it's uh, but I can imagine that feeling of guilt would have been so present and definitely something like that's so important that you did work through that though yes yes and immense guilt through the labor yeah like Mm. never having experienced childbirth myself being in that room and seeing her in so much pain I was Mm. like what have I done to you (laughs) um that was horrendous and there was certainly a point actually during the labor that she looked at me with the I could kill you right now (laughs) um and I'm sure now like she's like yes (laughs) yes no she said she wouldn't she certainly wouldn't change it for anything but um yeah, so there's certainly a lot to work through during the surrogacy process. But, um, you know, as I said to you before we started recording, yeah. you know, I'm so passionate about sharing my story because I want people to understand that it is a possibility in Australia. I want to demystify it. I want it to be part of the normal conversation um, around conception and around what your options are to create a family Mm -hmm. and I feel like we have come so far in the five years since I went through surrogacy I I didn't know anyone who did surrogacy there weren't there wasn't the dialogue that there is now Um, and and so I'm so you know you know, I'll, I'll talk about it till the cows come home, you know, because if if it means that one other woman thinks, okay, that's an option for me, and conversely, if it means one other woman who could be a surrogate thinks, oh, I could do that for my friend or my sister or, you know, s- someone, then, you know, I feel like, yes, my, my I've achieved, you know, my, my yeah. purpose. Yeah. Exactly. And, like, I know you've just mentioned, like, you've channeled that, passion and that personal experience into your profession as a lawyer and now you do get to help couples every day to navigate that process I'd love to know sort of what the legal side of things are like and how you help to navigate this with people who are trying to um, have a family through surrogacy yeah so I my my background, I, I was a lawyer. I was a commercial litigation lawyer, so it's very different to being a yes. surrogacy lawyer. And um, I had to, well, I didn't have to, but I chose to stop working um, effectively when I was, um, you know, knee deep in IVF because it was becoming unsustainable to to do both Um, and so at that point I started my own business and really the the purpose for that was just to continue doing the sort of work that I'd always done but on a much smaller scale and just to do you know small amounts of work that I could that I could fit in to keep my brain active you know I love being a lawyer love the law so you know yeah, but I, I on like a more manageable scale. On a more exactly you. right. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, you know, I was doing that, and then 
when we had to go through the legal process for surrogacy, it really sparked my interest for obvious reasons. And um, I loved, I loved it. And I thought I could do this and I could channel my own personal experience into helping others. And, and so that's effectively what I've done. And um, after my daughter was born, I had some time off obviously to, to focus on her. And then probably, when she was around maybe one or so, I thought, okay, I'm really going to get into this. And um, so then I started slowly getting into the surrogacy law space. And then I really ramped it up when she was three. So she didn't go to childcare. I had her at home with me until she was three. And then she started um, three-year-old kinder. And that's when I, um, you know, I, I really ramped it up and I established Russell Walker surrogacy. And so that, I now practice exclusively in surrogacy law and I get to help people go through this experience and it's just so satisfying. Um, And so, as I was saying earlier, the legal framework is different in each state. Um, And so the, the relevant legal framework is where the intended parents live. And so there is a, is a legal process to go through prior to, um, any uh, IVF treatment for the surrogate to become pregnant. Um, and so that involves each of the surrogate and her partner, if she has one, and the intended parents. So it could be um, male and female or, or two men or um, two women um, going through um, and each having their own lawyers and understanding what the legal framework is uh, in their state, understanding what the law says. Um, in Australia, we don't um, permit commercial surrogacy. We only permit altruistic surrogacy. Mm-hmm. So that means that um, a surrogate can't receive a commercial benefit for being a surrogate, um, but she can have her expenses reimbursed and those expenses are um, set out in the relevant legislation. And so I advise um people going through the process, what their obligations are under the um, under the legislation, what they can and can't do. Um, and then in some states, um, we also draw up a written surrogacy agreement. We don't do that in every state because it's not mandatory in every state, but it is mandatory in some states. Um, and then once the counselling and the legal, um, the legal advice has all been ticked off on, um, in some states, there is a, a, th- a third party um, review process like in Victoria, which is a process that I went through. Mm-hmm. And that's um, in Australia that happens in Victoria and Western Australia. And we, um, so uh, an independent panel approves um, the arrangement. And then after that approval happens, the embryo transfer procedures um, can, can take place. And then the other legal um, process happens once the baby's born because in Australia um, the baby is born and legally recognised um, as the child of the surrogate. So the surrogate and her partner are named on the baby's birth certificate. Um, and then there's a legal process that follows to effectively remove them from the birth certificate and put the intended parents um, on the birth certificate. So now my daughter's birth certificate, for example, has me, me and my husband as her parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that happens when the baby's um, um, between one month and, and six months of age. So, um, and it's so lovely when I get, you know, rarely I'll get um, to do just one part of it. 
it's so lovely when I do the pre um, legal advice and then I get to follow the journey all the way and the pregnancy and then um, see a baby born I just absolutely just that is so special so much it's so special Um, and I I, so I provide I guess quite a different service I don't just provide the legal advice I provide it you know a support service the entire pregnancy particularly in the third trimester um, and you know refer people to support networks and um, you know make suggestions about you know midwives and very multifaceted and yeah yeah yeah, all that sort of stuff and encourage people to engage with um, you know you know, specialist, you know, sort of perinatal surrogacy um, counsellors throughout the process. And yeah, I really love it. It's wonderful. Oh, you're doing such an incredible thing. And I know, as we've said, like prior to recording, like trying to just demystify surrogacy in Australia. And yeah. like you said, even if it helps one person, which I know you've helped more than one, you've helped so, so many people. So it's just incredible. Yeah. Uh, I love it and yeah yeah, the you know the more I I can do the better really yeah Mm, yeah do you have any sort of hints or tips or things for people to consider who might be looking at um, going down that surrogacy pathway to start their family yeah so I think the most important thing is to um is to 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 research and to um to source um, you know, um, you know the right the right team, uh, and so so many people I see try to just tick the box with their their counselling and their legal advice because these aspects are mandatory. Mm-hmm. Um, I really encourage people to really engage with the process and find people who are going to be that you are going to view as being part of your team. Yeah. And if you don't feel like those people are part of your team, they're probably not the right people. Um, so I'd, I'd just encourage you to talk to others who have been through the process and there are some Facebook forums. Um, there's Intended Parents Through Surrogacy on Facebook. Um, there's also the Australian Surrogacy Community on Facebook. Um, and then I think there's state-based um, teams as well so you can actually go on there and ask people what their experiences were or are um, you know reach out to to people like me and say hey I get a lot of people that are just you know at the point where they just um, exploring it and considering it and I try to do sort of quarterly information sessions for people to answer you know general questions about the process um, so I encourage people to to join in those and to you know to contact me or another surrogacy lawyer um, to ask questions. Um, I also really encourage people to shop around. Um, there are still lawyers who are amazing, but who are very expensive, and you know, are, in my view, charge too much. Um, and so I really don't want people to I still get that that sense from people that they think that surrogacy in Australia is unattainable because it's Mm. too expensive and I don't want people to feel like that because it's not yeah um and if you are getting told you know for example someone said to me the other other day they were told it would would cost them you know a hundred thousand dollars in Australia and I was just Mm. like gobsmacked yeah 
um, please, please, please just do your research and, you know, you know, reach out to people who have been in the situation and, and ask as many questions as possible. I think that's probably my number one tip. Yeah. And also to really engage with um, counselling. I think counselling is awesome. And, you know, if you find the right person, and I, I can give a million recommendations of people who specialise in this space, um, it's it's very, very worthwhile. Yeah, I think that is some really helpful advice. And I think being able to have access to those Facebook groups and things like that is yes. so important because, as you said, you didn't know anybody when you were trying no. to navigate that pathway. So having access to those communities is a really helpful thing and makes it that much easier. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Mm. What would you like to see change within the fertility and pelvic health space, Nicole? Um, I think that what I would like to see is a more integrative approach um, from um, with the actual um, the clinics and the fertility specialists. So I think we're getting there. I think from, um, you know, when I, you know, even in the last five years, we are getting there. I think um, there, that specialists are recognising that we do need more of an integrative approach um, and by integrative I mean um, not just this strict um, medical throw all the medication at it approach but also um, taking into account the psychological effects of treatment and medication mm -hmm. um, and also um, you know lifestyle um, tips and support and how those things can help and instead of viewing you know adjunct therapies as being well you know that's you know that's not um you know medicine um in, in the sense that we know about it then then it, it doesn't mean anything um yes i would like that sort of more integrative approach and and one of the main things that has certainly changed that that would have really assisted me during the time is this this dialogue and this conversation that's happening around um, fertility and pelvic health. These things didn't exist when I was going through it, and I think it would have just been so helpful. Um, so I applaud you and and everyone else who's really um, creating this this space for this conversation. I think it's you know it's just so invaluable. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I just want to say like a massive thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing your story and being so open and vulnerable and just for everything this morning I think it is going to help so many people just sharing your story so thank you so much for coming on today Nicole oh thank you so much I'm so grateful it's been such a great chat Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Period with Nicole Russell. If you want even more from Nicole, you can find her on Instagram at Russell Walker Surrogacy or you can head to their website, russellwalkersurrogacy.com.au. If you want more from Let's Talk Period, you can head to us on Instagram at Let's Talk Period AU. Don't forget that we've also got our Let's Talk Period community on Facebook, so just search that or check the show notes. It is the place for people living with endo, PCOS or adeno or infertility to chat, ask questions and get support with other people who just get it. 
And if you haven't got your ticket to LTP live in Toowoomba, make sure you hop on it. Tickets are in the show notes. It is going to be such a fun night. Let's Talk Period is an independent podcast, so if you did enjoy the app today, I'd love if you could share this with a friend or a family member, share it on your socials, um, or if you could just follow and rate the show on Spotify and Apple, that would be great. Let's Talk Period is produced for educational purposes and the information, recommendations and topics talked about does not constitute medical advice or take into consideration your personal circumstances or medical history.